0: Well, we are in our second week of Advent. And for those who don't know, Advent simply means the coming or arrival. During Advent season, Christians often celebrate by remembering the arrival of King Jesus at his birth. And our focus this Advent season is much the same, but with that is added another layer of meaning. As we look not only back and remember Jesus' first coming but we are also looking forward and anticipating Christ's return. And as we anticipate his return, we are preaching through what we call the four last things. The four last things being death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Tate last week, he introduced the subject as he preached on death. Specifically, he preached on how death is gain for the believer but in his sermon, he, he taught us something important. He helped define what exactly death is. Typically, when we think of death, we think of death as being the end of life. But Tate clarified and sharpened our thinking some as he talked about death not merely being the end of life. In fact, it's not the end of life at all. But it is the temporary separation of the soul from the body. And as a Christian, we understand that death, it's not the end. I love the way the scriptures talk about death. Oftentimes when the saints are described as having died, they're described as falling asleep instead because death isn't the end. If death were the end, well, then it would be the one last thing, which would be death. But this is the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And the scriptures speak very clearly about this. In Hebrews 9:27, it says, it is appointed for man to die once. And after that, comes judgment. And so here in the second week of Advent, we come to the second subject of the four last things, which is judgment. But before we get into this morning's text, I want to share with you something I purchased recently. I I bought a new Christmas sweater, but it's not a Christmas sweater. It's a T-shirt, but it has a print on it that makes it look like a knitted sweater. Uh, My in-laws would be appalled if I actually called this a sweater. Here's my new Christmas sweater, And it says, you are all on the naughty list. And it's got John Calvin there, if you don't recognize him, in the Santa Claus hat. And I just got a kick out of it. I've been looking at it for years and thinking about buying it and have put it off and put it off until finally about a month ago. I said, Sarah, I'm going to buy it. And actually, she bought it for me. She ordered it up for me. And and so I I, I bought it because I thought it was funny. I thought it'd be a good conversation starter, perhaps, as well, as as it's kind of playing off of uh, total depravity. Uh Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And so we're all on the naughty list is what at least the shirt is claiming. But, but let me make a clarification about what this sweater slash t-shirt actually gets wrong. You see, it makes a massive overstatement in saying that you are all on the naughty list. And we need to get clarity on this overstatement if we're going to rightly understand this morning's scripture. You see, my Christmas sweater lumps all of us here into one category, that is naughty, sinful, totally depraved. But our scripture here shows us that there are in fact two categories of people. One that we call the wicked and the other, the righteous. Jesus says at the very end of our passage in Matthew twenty-five, forty-six, that the wicked, they'll go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so you see, I hope that not everyone is in fact on the naughty list. It's true that apart from Christ, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And that was true of all of us before we came to Christ. But now that we have in fact come to Jesus in faith, we are a new person. 2 Corinthians five seventeen 17 says, this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And so Christian, you are not totally depraved. You are not on the naughty list. You are, in fact, among those who are, as we see in this text, righteous. And so if we're going to rightly understand this text, we need to have an understanding of these two biblical categories, the righteous and the wicked. And we need to make sure that we make a clear distinction between the two so that we aren't confused about what's going on here as Jesus is separating the the wicked and the righteous, the goats from the sheep. The final judgment is a reality, brothers and sisters, that not a single one of us can ignore. Even those of you who do not believe in Jesus cannot ignore this truth. The coming judgment, it is like a train that is coming quickly. And though you cannot see the train, you can hear the train as it comes near, as you hear its whistle screaming in the distance, warning everyone that it is coming and it is near. And if you're playing on the tracks, it is going to run you over. Our scripture this morning acts as the whistle of that train that is trumpeting as that day draws nearer to us. So listen clearly. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 25 that when the Son of Man comes in his glory, the Son of Man, of course, being the prophetic title that Jesus most often used to refer to himself that comes from the prophet Daniel. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne Before him, he will gather all the nations and he will separate the people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And so this season, as we prepare for Christ's return, let's do so by anticipating Christ's second coming as the judge. Understand his second coming, when he returns, it will be quite unlike his first. When Jesus first came, he came in humility, born in a manger, his glory clothed in human flesh. He came as a servant to die a humiliating death on the cross. He did all of this to save sinners, as we know so well from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the message that we rejoice in. This is what causes us to sing joy to the world. But this is often where our understanding and even our proclamation of the gospel begins and ends. Jesus, yes, he came into the world to save sinners. But what exactly did he save us from? This is the truth that we are perhaps not as eager to preach to those who do not believe. But the scriptures aren't ashamed of it, so let us declare it loud and clear. Christ came into the world to save us, yes, from our sins. But why do we need saved from our sins? Well, because in our sin, we stand under the wrath of God. And if people don't understand that, then they won't understand why Jesus even came in his first Advent. If they do not understand that sinners stand condemned under the wrath of God, then they will not understand first his first Advent, but much more, they will be confused in the way in which Jesus comes in his second Advent. You see, when Jesus returns, it will be quite unlike his first. And our text makes this very clear to us. It begins in verse 31 saying, when he comes, he will come in his glory. And all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. In his first advent, Jesus came in humility. But when he returns, Jesus will come in his glory on full display for all to see. And if the purpose of Jesus' coming is, is confusing to us in his second advent, then we need to see it, it is very different as well from the first, and that in his first he came to save sinners, but in the second coming he will come to judge sinners. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on the right, but the goats on the left. Of the goats, he says this, those will go away into eternal punishment in verse 46, but the righteous into eternal life. So I don't want us to mistake Christ's first coming with his second coming. I want us to have in full view here that when he comes, when he returns, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so we need to grasp very clearly what this judgment is going to be like. Jesus is giving us a preview into what it's gonna be like. And so it's for us to examine carefully and understand very well what that day will be like. So first I want us to see that his his judgment, when he returns, it will be a universal judgment. Every person, Christian and non-Christian alike, will stand before the throne of King Jesus and he will judge us according to what we have done. Every single person here will stand before Jesus one day. And more than that, the scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Listen to how Jesus says it here in Matthew 25. Before him will be gathered all the nations, all the people, both the sheep and the goats, both the the righteous and the wicked. They will all be there in this final judgment Now, if you're here this morning and you deny the deity of Christ, you can surely do that. You can try to put even the final judgment out of your mind, but ignoring the whistle of the train will not stop the train on its tracks. There is no escaping the final judgment. He is coming, and he has told us what it will be like. Every one of us will stand before him. His judgment will be universal. Second thing we should know about his judgment is this, it will be just. He is a just judge. And he will bring his judgment before us with solid evidences of what we have done or what we have not done. Starting in verse 34, he says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And here's the evidence that he brings forward against, or excuse me, for those sheep. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So there's the evidence for those sheep. He says, this is how I know you are a sheep. For those on his left, in verse 41, he will say to them, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And here's the evidence against them. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit visit me. Unlike our human judgment, which is so often put askew by our own biases or by our own love for people who we see as near and dear to us, We need to understand that God's judgment will be without any bias. It will be without any partiality. He will be perfectly just in all of his judgments. There will not be one sinner, one person who is wicked, who sneaks onto the side of the righteous, and there will not be one righteous person who is misaccused and put onto the left with those goats. He will not judge us based on what family we are born into. Romans 2, Paul says there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and and peace to everyone who does good. The the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So if you think you have any kind of favor with God because you were born into just that really special family and raised up in the church, know that that's not true. Furthermore, God does not show any partiality based on your social status in the world. Ephesians 6, 9, Paul now writing to the masters who are gonna be of a higher social status than the slaves gives this warning. He says, masters, do the same to them, them being, of course, the slaves. Stop your threatening knowing that he, that's God, who is both their master and yours in heaven, And that there is no partiality with him. And so if you think here on earth you can get away with things because you can pull some strings because of some kind of clout you have, know that before the throne of God, there will be no partiality. God, he is a just judge and each person will receive their due according to what they have done. Which might cause some of us to to lean forward. God judging us based on our, our works, comes right up against our beloved doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification, of course, being the legal declaration from God that we are no longer guilty on account of Christ's finished work on the cross. We are justified by faith and faith alone. We know that a person, Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, also, we have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because works of the law, by, but by works of the law, excuse me, no one will be justified. So, we must maintain this teaching here and not lose sight of it, as many have throughout history and even as many have in our own day and age. But there is another truth that we must also grasp firmly, and that is the truth that we will be judged according to what we have done. Let me just read some scriptures and let the scriptures speak for themselves. Matthew sixteen twenty-seven. Jesus said, for when the son of man, uh, for the son of man, excuse me, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 said, for we must all appear for the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, what is his due, excuse me, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, how do we make sense of this? If we are justified by faith alone, if we are saved by grace through faith and apart from works, then why does God judge even the Christians' works? Not just the wicked people, but even the Christians' works. Well, I think the answer to that question is clearly answered by James. When he said, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Good works stand here in this divine courtroom as the evidence of God's saving grace that is active in the life of believers. And so I think we see even in our text this morning, both God's grace extended to these sheep as well as the evidence of his grace. First, let's consider the grace that is poured out on these lowly sheep. In Matthew 25, 34, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. These people are blessed by God. And I think that language itself is just saturated with grace. But more than that, I want to focus in particular on that word, inherit. Inherit. The kingdom is received as an inheritance, not as ones due, not because they've worked for it, not because they've earned it, but because they belong to the family of God. And what is the evidence that these are, in fact, true children of God? Jesus continues in verse 35. Here's the evidence. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And so we see, I hope very clearly, I hope we see that faith without works is dead. If we don't have these good fruit in our lives, then I don't know that we can make any boast or claim about our faith being a genuine living faith. For if there is no evidence of grace, you should not claim to have received grace. This evidence is the DNA that proves that we are, in fact, children of God. But here's the perplexing thing about this text that we see repeated two times over. How can we do these things for Jesus, serving him in these, all these different ways? How can we actually serve Jesus in this way, bringing them water and bringing him food and giving him clothes and visiting him in prison and visiting him when he's sick? How, how can we do these things if, in fact, we've never seen him? Well, this is what... Both the sheep and the goats ask just as well. Verse 38, and the sheep, they ask, and when do we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick and in prison and visit you? And the king answered, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is incredible. Evidently, yours and my union with Christ is so close that when we serve even one another we are in fact serving the lord jesus christ so there in the final judgment it is our own interactions even with one another that will be brought forward forward as the the evidence to either prove or disprove the genuineness of our faith and that's all under god as a just judge here's the last thing i want us to see about the judgment of christ and we're going to be quick on this point Jesus' judgment will be final. I get this from the last verse in this chapter. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now much more will be said about heaven and hell in the weeks to come, but for now let us make this much clear: There is no mistake in Jesus' judgment. There is no mistrial, no do-over, no bail. Rather, Jesus' sentence, it is, it is final, and it is eternal. And so, brothers and sisters, and even those of you who do not believe in Jesus Christ, know this, Christ, he is coming soon to judge the living and the dead. So what will you do with this news? Point number two, we are to all Examine ourselves before we are judged. Since Christ's judgment is based on what we actually do in this life, here and now we have the opportunity to examine our own lives to see whether or not we have the same evidence of of grace, the very works that are to be accompanied with true and genuine living faith. And this means we should turn over every single rock in our life to see what is underneath of it. And I mean it, every single rock that we possibly can. And we could do so by reading the Word of God, not just to gain head knowledge, in fact, not just for head knowledge at all, but to gain insight into the hidden parts of our heart. More than this, we should even get engaged in Christian community, not just for the fun of fellowship with people who think like us, but also for the sharpening insights that a fellow brother can bring into your life when you do not see the hidden blind spots of sin. And when sin is exposed, either by the word of God or by the, the, the rebuke of a, a brother or sister, then, then you should repent of sin. The stakes are high here when we're talking about the final judgment. And whenever the stakes are high, a careful examination is all the more necessary. Let me illustrate it with a lesson I learned uh, when Sarah and I first got married, when Sarah and I uh, we're, we're newlyweds. We were looking into buying uh, our first house and we found a, a little house that had recently been remodeled. It was a modest little house, but it was, it was clean. New carpets, new paint, everything was fresh. And that, of course, was just very desirable for us. We thought it would be perfect for us to, to start a family in. But of course, no home is perfect But all the same, none of us would want to get stuck in a a money pit, having purchased a house that is no good at all. And so we had our home inspected like anyone would do. And though the price of the inspection seemed like an excessive expense and one that seemed unnecessary in the moment, well, we found out some ugly truths about that beautiful home from that inspection. In fact, I have a picture. Um, Apparently someone had a fire. In the house, and what you see there is, is the attic space that's charred thoroughly. Uh, I had to show you the picture because saying it was, would be hard to believe. And you wouldn't know it by looking at the exterior of the house that this house had a, a significant fire that had taken place inside of it. And so, though the, the inspection cost, cost us a bit of money, and though it was even a greater disappointment to Sarah and me after all the steps that we had taken to, to try to purchase this house, and after we had even imagined our life being in this home, that inspection actually saved us significantly. Yes, it cost us something, but but it saved us more than it ever would have costed us. Brothers and sisters, and even those who do not believe, understand eternity is at stake. Eternal life in heaven and eternal bliss or eternal death and the torments there of hell are at stake here before us. And there is nothing more serious nor anything in this world that is more important than knowing whether or not you are among the righteous or among the wicked. And some of us are playing games, keeping sins a secret, thinking that we're getting away with it. And so we're careful when we come to church not to, to lose our temper You delete your internet history so that no one can know what you're looking at. You keep your your love of money a secret. But know this, there is nothing that is hidden from the sight of God who searches the heart. And not a single one of us will escape the just and perfect judgment of God. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, Ecclesiastes 12:14. And since every work will be brought into light, let us examine ourselves carefully while we still can. And to do this, let me ask two questions of you. Consider them carefully. First, consider whether or not you love righteousness. The scriptures repeatedly warn us of the dangers of sin. 1 Corinthians 6 gives a thorough list, though not even exhaustive in its entirety. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, of course, there isn't a single one of us here who does not struggle with at least one, if not multiple, of those sins listed by the Apostle Paul. Even the Apostle himself described his own battle with his sin in Romans 7. He said, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So it is of every single one of us. We are still, as long as we are alive in this body here on earth, every single one of us will struggle with sin. But what is it that sets Paul and every Christian apart from the wicked in the world? It's not the absence of sin, but rather it is the hatred of sin and the love for righteousness. So Paul said, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He loves the righteous commands of God, he longs to obey God. And this is evidence that he has, in fact, been saved by God. And the Spirit of God is dwelling in him. Listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, if there is a battle inside of you with the things of the spirit, the things of righteousness, that, those good fruit against which there is no law, and that of the flesh, that is a sweet evidence that you are saved, that you are a child of God sealed with the Spirit of God. And so, do you love righteousness? Do you love the things of God and hate the things of the flesh and the things of this world? if so that is a a good and gracious evidence of of the lord's work in your life but there is another evidence one that is actually in our text here in matthew 25 that i want us to consider if you want to see whether or not you're a sheep consider if you love your neighbor there is something kind of curious i think about matthew 25 jesus here as he gives his commendation to the righteous and condemns the wicked. We see nowhere in here in comparison of the two, any of these sins committed that are listed elsewhere in scripture as far as the, the condemnation of the wicked. Listen to what Jesus didn't say to the wicked. He didn't say when I was hungry, it was because you stole my food. He didn't say that when he was thirsty, it was because you defiled his water. What he didn't say was that when he was a stranger, it was because you drove him from his home. Nor did he say that he was naked because you defrauded him, nor was he sick in prison because of anything of your doing. Listen to his condemnation of the wicked. He will say to those on his left, Depart, me, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty. And You gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and you did in prison and you did not visit, visit me. The distinction made here between the wicked and the righteous wasn't because of anything evil, at least not vilely evil the way we would think of it, that the wicked had done. Rather, the distinction was what the wicked failed to do. That was any act of mercy. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And what, of course, is the fulfillment of the law? The law that that Paul himself said he delighted in his inmost being in. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. Inseparable, in fact, from the first, you might say. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and prophets. So consider carefully. Do you actually have a love for your, your neighbor? A love for your brothers and sisters who are in Christ? there is a wealth of application here for all of us to learn from there are there are some here many in fact who are engaged in these very acts of loving mercy i love the way our church gathers around people who are sick and by doing meal trains and bringing food to those who are are in need a few are even engaged in visiting those who are sick and in the hospital and some are even engaged in in serving and relieving the other needs of those among us and for those who are engaged in these activities of mercy keep it up in your service to your brothers and sisters in christ know this you are serving the lord jesus christ and the king will say to you truly as you have done it to the least of these you did it unto me your labor is not in vain The Lord, He sees your work and He will reward your work if you are faithful to the end. But if you are not engaged in doing these acts of mercy, it is not for either a lack of opportunity, nor is it for a lack of ability. If you think there is no opportunity for you to to engage in these kinds of acts of mercy among your brothers and sisters, even here in our own congregation, well, it's because you just aren't in community. You aren't aware of other people's needs. Perhaps it's because you're thinking so much of yourself that you haven't even thought of anyone else. This last week alone, there are at least half a dozen families in our church who fit into the categories that Jesus has listed here. And those are just the situations that I'm aware of. So if you are unaware of the needs in this body, it's likely due to the fact that you are uninvolved in this body. And that uninvolvement is owing to the fact that you are selfish, You love yourself instead of loving others as you love yourself. And if you're here and you say, well, I know about these needs, but I'm unable to do these things, well, then just read again through this list very carefully. None of the things that are being actually commended here by the righteous nor condemned by the wicked are difficult at all. I was hungry and you gave me food, or no food to the wicked, excuse me, and I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. We have food. Pantry's full of it. We have running water and no lack of it. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not clothe me. How many of us could at least open up our homes, even no matter how modest your home is, and welcome some stranger, a brother or sister in the Lord, and welcome them into your home and show them your hospitality or even here greet a stranger who you do not know. Or how many of our wardrobes are full not of just two tunics but hundreds and hundreds of them to give to those who have none i was sick and in prison and you did not visit me how many of us are just too busy to not visit someone who's alone and hurting If you are not engaged in any act of mercy, it is not owing to a lack of opportunity or a lack of ability, but rather if you are not engaged in these kinds of work, it is owing to a lack of love. And if it seems that I'm being too hard on this and coming down on you all too hard, it's only because I I myself feel deeply convicted of my own neglect in these areas of my life. And I know that I have a, a long ways to go and a lot of growth in my own life to actually to love people the way Christ has loved me. And I even think us as a church can grow in this area significantly. And so these two questions deserve our utmost attention. Do you love righteousness, and do you love your neighbor, much less your fellow Christian brother? First John 3:10. By this is, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so you must examine yourself before you stand before the judgment seat of God. But if in looking and examining yourself, you kind of think, oh yeah, I actually think I might be a goat. I look a whole lot like them. What should you do? You might think, okay, well, I'm going to start giving food to the hungry and water to the thirsty and visiting those who are in the hospital and and welcoming strangers and, and all the like. And we can go through our list of all the things that we're supposed to do. And is that the right thing? Is that how a person comes to inherit the kingdom of God? I hope you recognize, just by the way, I worded that a person does not earn an inheritance. What is an inheritance? Is it a wage? No. It is what is given to those who belong to the family. And this is exactly what, what John has just said. By this it is evident who are the children of God. It's the evidence that you have received God's grace. It is the evidence that your faith is genuine and true. So the question isn't, how must I receive my wage? What must I do in order to earn anything? No, rather, the question should be, first, am I a child of God? And second, if no, how do I become a child of God? And the scriptures, again, speak so clearly to this. First, I'm sorry, John 1:12, But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. For every one of us here, in light of the coming judgment, believe in Jesus Christ who bore your judgment so that that day would not be so miserable, but instead that day would be a glorious and wonderful day. Believe in Jesus Christ who bore your judgment If upon looking at your life and you you see that you look like a goat, the temptation might, might be to start imitating the sheep. But in doing so, know this, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus speaks of the same thing in Matthew 7. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name, all the works that they had done? thinking we're impressive, the Lord must be pleased. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If you think that by your works, you might earn your way into heaven by doing the acts of mercy instead of pleading on God on behalf of his mercy and grace, then you are missing some crucial details here about the last judgment. Let's look again at our text and we'll be brief. Then the king, verse 33, then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food and I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now we've already talked about what these words do say, the commendation that he gives to those who are faithful servants. But what I wanna highlight is what it doesn't say. Now, of course, we know that these sheep were sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what we don't see here in this commendation of all the good works that they have done is any word of condemnation. If you think your works will save you, as if those works are able to cover up the sins that you have done over a lifetime of sin, you forget you do not need a cover-up. You need cleansing, cleansing. You need forgiveness and Christ will give you a clean record and that is received only by faith. No works of the law can ever clean what you have done in the past. Just as a criminal who has a lifetime of good records will not be guiltless if he stands before a human court of law, no matter how long that list may be. And so then we see why Jesus came in his first advent Not to judge, but to die in the place of sinners. For our sake, he, God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we've already observed, every single one of us will stand before the throne of God to be judged, believer and non-believer alike. But Christian, if you fear that day, thinking that day of judgment will be a dreadful day of you, know this, when he opens the book and gives an account of what you have done in your life, will he bring up all of your sins from the past? Absolutely not. Because Jesus has died for your sins. And as far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ, we have a new record, a clean slate. We are, in Christ's eyes, in God's eyes, righteous, perfectly righteous. Not because of our works, but because the power of the blood of Christ. But if you still insist on trying to earn your salvation, I want to point out one last detail about this. How did did Jesus know who to put on the right and left? Of course, there were the evidences. Yes, that is true. But before he brings out the evidences, listen to what Jesus did in verse 32 and 33. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. I want to point this out. Sheep and goats, they have, they of course, they, they have some pretty key differences. Goats are aggressive little things, while sheep are docile and Gentile. But fundamentally, it's not just their behavior that makes them different, they are different creatures. And Christ gives his people a new nature. Clipping the horns off the goat won't make it a sheep. So, also, doing good works that look like sheep like works will not turn the wicked into the righteous. The author of Hebrews tells us that faith, that without faith, excuse me, it is impossible to please God. And so, here is the miracle that happens in the life of a believer they are transformed. They are taken from being just like the rest of the world and they are given a a brand new nature. They are born again. The wicked are made righteous by the finished work of Christ. And so Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Every one of us here, whether you are a believer or not, you need to know that the day of judgment is coming at you like a train. And though you do not now see it, the scripture has acted as the whistle to cause you to wake up and pay attention and stop playing on the tracks. Judgment is coming against sin. The Lord's judgment, it is universal, it is just, and it is final And if you are not certain of your standing before God this morning, then do not rest until you are certain of where you stand. If you are not certain that you are standing in Christ, and on that last day you will stand as a sheep, not condemned, but one who will hear the words, well done, thy good and faithful servant. If you are not certain of that, then repent of your sins and cast them on Christ, knowing that he is faithful and just to cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. And more than that, those who are in Christ are a new creation do not delay your repentance do not think that you can live a life of sin and one day be granted repentance there on your deathbed for Christ will return at any moment so repent while it is still called day but for those of us who are believers that day of judgment it is not bad news at all no in fact that day of judgment is going to be the best day of our lives the sound of the train is not sound of terror But for those who have a beloved person on that train, that sound of the whistle coming to us is good and glorious and we long to see him face to face. Christ's return will be the day when every promise is fulfilled, when we no longer wrestle with sin, but instead we will be like him fully and we will receive our full inheritance and more than this, we will be with him. And so... Brothers and sisters, his second coming is good news for us. And so we get to say with all the saints, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Oh, Father, help us to see ourselves rightly this morning. Reveal to us hidden sins that even we have not been aware of. Lord, even where we have sins in our lives that we are aware of, that we love and cling on to and we don't want to let go of, Lord, would you change us and transform us, make us more and more like Christ. Give us a greater love for you and your righteousness, the hunger and thirst for your kingdom. Give us a, a hatred for this world so that we might be able to say with Paul that truly death is our gain. Lord, we want to see you. We want to be with you. No longer separated by this veil, but we want to see you face to face. And so, Lord Jesus, come, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.